first of all, I want to thank you so much for being here with me today and taking the time to uh, interview with AGA. Uh, you guys are obviously uh, very important to us and, and uh, our first member ever. So this is a, a big deal to have you guys on here. So we always brag about our certificate saying uh, certificate number 00001. <laughs> So, so why don't, why don't you start off, introduce yourself, tell me a little bit about Bluffton, Georgia and White Oak Bastions. Sure. So my name is Jenny Harris. I am a member of the fifth generation of Harris's to live and work at White Oak Pastures. Uh, White Oak Pastures is the name of our farm. We're in Bluffton, Georgia, and we pasture raise and hand butcher 10 species of livestock on the farm. So uh, that would be cattle, goats, sheep, hogs, rabbits, chickens, turkeys, ducks, geese, guineas. Uh, I don't think I left anybody off, but if anybody listens to this, you can, uh, you can let me know. Um, and we process them on the farm. So uh, we're, we're really proud of a few things, but one of which is sort of reinventing the, the food uh, system. We raise livestock, process them on the farm, and uh, distribute them either to grocery stores like Whole Foods and Publix and Kroger, uh, or we ship them directly to consumers via our online store and UPS. You asked specifically about the town of Bluffton. Uh, and so Bluffton is, uh, is, is part of the rural South. You know, it peaked in population in the early 1900s and has been on the decline since then. In fact, growing up, my sisters and I were some of the only children that lived within the city limits of Bluffton. Uh, and so the thought of a community for me was, was one that I really didn't understand. I was really ready to go to college and um, have people that lived close to me, perhaps with similar interest, maybe not, didn't matter. There was uh, just a bunch of people. So surely uh, that would be better than growing up with no one. And so Bluffton became part of the rural uh, South because of the industrialization of agriculture. You know, back before World War II, it took lots of people and lots of livestock to tend to crops and fields. And after World War II, a lot of things changed, one of which was the mechanization and technology that made food production cheap and abundant. And so towns like Bluffton dried up. That calls it the brain drain in that the A and B students moved to urban areas like Tallahassee, Florida, or Atlanta, Georgia, or Columbus, Georgia to find uh, you know, good jobs where you wear a suit and you uh, aspire to get the corner office on the 12th floor while the C and D students like my dad stayed home to farm. And um, that, that has changed, uh, luckily for me. Uh, Bluffton is now not, not super populated. I think the last census showed 103 people, but uh, those people that are here uh, uh, are, are mostly contributory to White Oak Pastures, which has 175 employees uh, most of whom are really passionate about the food production system uh, with a focus on high animal welfare, land regeneration, and the rural revival of Bluffton, Georgia. 
So this is an excellent opportunity and a perfect lead into what I wanted to talk about with you next, which is, you know, there's a lot of folks that say that, you know, we're not able to produce food at scale sustainably using regenerative principles. Now, you guys are an obvious example of someone who is able to farm regeneratively at scale. How, how did you guys crack that code? And why do so many folks face barriers when they're trying to produce that way in, at scale? Yeah, so that's a loaded question. Um, so how did we crack the code? I don't really know that we have cracked the code. Um, Dad wanted to transition the industrial commodity production system that he uh, established on the farm you know, early after college, you know, sort of, I need to back up a little bit. The evolution of this farm was my great-great-grandfather who, uh, you know, farmed very holistically with focus on the land and the animals. And that was because that was what they had. You know, their livelihoods were uh, determined by the health of their livestock and crops. And he transitioned uh, the farm to his son who held those same values. That was uh, my my great grandfather um, and and you know again, if you wanted to eat it, wear it, or smoke it, they grew it and they took care of it. It wasn't until my grandfather's uh, generation that things really started to to go backwards in terms of soil health, rural revivals, and and high animal welfare. And it was because they learned to focus on some benchmarks that. Uh, were pretty narrowly focused, um, you know, efficiency, weight gain, uh, you know, and using technology, chemical fertilizer, pesticides, and insecticides, you know, to, to sort of force a singular outcome. And the quality of the product was based on that singular outcome. And that worked really well for producing cheap, abundant food, but it sucked pretty bad for soil health and animal welfare in little towns like Bluffton, Georgia. So when dad took over the farm in the mid nineties, he knew that he wanted to farm differently. He knew that there were consumers that cared about a different type of product. Um, and that for, for us was, was grass fed beef. And he knew that those uh, consumers wanted products that were raised with high animal welfare, you know, with a lot of intention on the, you know, on the soil, uh, you know, and, and done domestically here in the USA. And so he launched uh, the brand White Oak Pastures, which has been, you know, the farm's been in my family for 150 something years, but we had to call it something. So we called it White Oak Pastures. And the first bottleneck that we got to was processing. Uh, you know, in the industrialization of agriculture, uh, food, specifically meat, had been centralized to you know a, a very siloed approach. You send wean calves to feedlots, feedlots finish the cattle, they then send them to be processed in mega plants. Uh, you know, and then the beef is either you know cooked or ground or sold you know, in different and various forms from there. And so the, the first bottleneck was processing. We were using processing off the farm in Tifton, Georgia, and that option was not scalable for us. We needed the ability to, uh, you know, to, to do more 
head of cattle each week because our product had caught traction in the marketplace. And so dad decided to uh, borrow two and a half million dollars to build a processing plant on the farm in 2007, which was completed in 2008. And that was sort of the first, you know, cracking the code. I, I still don't think we've cracked the code because we struggle every day, uh, you know, on, on some issue, be it, you know, processing or sales, you know, every day is a new challenge. We've reinvented something. And so there's no blueprint, you know, for us to go by. But the ability for us to process opened things up and uh, gave us the confidence and ability to approach different outlets uh, you know, to, to guarantee them some volume, which we did. Uh, but the, the truth is cracking the code is so much more than just processing. You know, everybody thinks that, you know, when you're climbing up a hill, if you can just get over the hill, everything will be okay. And the truth is over that hill is another dozen hills that you've got to continue to climb. So for us, the ability to process only opened up the need for access to market. You know, we had these, these products, which for us was cattle that cost more to raise, cost more to process, cost more to distribute. And we had to find the right type of customer to sell those to. We couldn't then take all of these costs and internalize them in our production system just to dump those products in the commodity market. That, that's, a, that's a losing game. And so, uh, you know, back to your question, we're still trying to crack the code, uh, and I, we, we have not done it, and I'm hopeful that we're, we're closer to it every day. Every day that we, uh, you know, don't go belly up is the day that we're closer to cracking it, but the, the code keeps on changing. So, and that, you know, it, and one of the ways I'm sure that has been helpful is getting, getting the most out of the animal which I see that you guys do in a lot of ways. And um, when we were at Grassfed Exchange earlier this year, I was, I was really interested in hearing your story about the, the pet shoes and how you guys had started doing that with, with uh, repurposed peanut dryers and how you started this. So can, can you tell me a little bit more about, I know you guys do, you guys blue leather, tallow and pet shoes. And I know you guys will also, someone from White Oak Pastures is coming out to our Regenerate Conference for the webinar week this year to be able to present on some of this stuff. So I'll put some information in here for folks to be able to sign up if they're interested in that. But can you speak to that a little bit? You know, um, your leather, your tallow, your pet shoes, getting started with that and how that, how that all works. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, part of the, uh, you know, the, the development of Bluffton is bringing all of these passionate people to this small town where there's not a lot to do. Uh, you know, there's, there's, um, there's a restaurant, which is ours. There's a store, which is ours. Uh, you know, there's no bars or clubs or movies or whatever within an hour of where I'm sitting. And so we bring all these young, passionate, energetic, motivated people here uh, and, uh, you know, th there's, there's not too many ways to spend their time. So they, they focus on, uh, you know, getting creative with the things that they do have. And so our first zero waste product was our tallow bar soap. We had two interns that, uh, knew that in composting, which we compost all the inedible viscera, uh, 
off the farm or from, from our plants, you know, into compost, which we then spread as an organic, uh, you know, amendment to, to the pasture. Uh, but they knew that fat did not compost well. So they said, hmm, what can we do with fat? And so thanks to Google and YouTube, they came up with our uh, recipe for our bar soap. And from there, the tallow products have, have really grown into candles and moisturizers. We launched the first foaming tallow hand soap during the pandemic. You know, people realized, oh yeah, we got to wash our hands. It's 2020, uh, you know, COVID-19. We, 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 we've made it generations without washing our hands, but we might as well start now. So uh, we, we launched our foaming uh, hand soap, which has, has been great. Um, and so, uh, you know, tallow products were sort of the, the first and it was born out of a necessity to not send fat to compost. And then came the hides. The hide market is incredible. If any cattle producers that are watching this have ever, or even processors have ever dealt with selling hides into the commodity hide market, you're probably nodding your head. It's, uh, it's it, this, this will be a whole nother podcast, but the hide market is, is tough. So uh, we found a way to keep them on the farm and that is through our pet shoes. We threw a very uh, you know, specific process, remove the hair and the flesh from the hide and then dry it in a, uh, a room that's uh, heated with a propane peanut dryer. And we cut them into raw hides, which we then sell as pet shoes. And those two things add uh, a, a considerable amount of revenue to the system by creating value-added products uh, from them. If we were selling hides to the hide market one week, uh, we couldn't throw, we wouldn't, we couldn't give them away. And other weeks, it'd be fifty or sixty bucks per hide. And then the next week, we couldn't, we couldn't give them away. And then the next week, it'd be fifty or sixty per hide. So, uh, you know, we we're simply not flexible enough to react with those changes in that system. So we found a way to internalize them here to give consumers who care a lot about the land, the animals in this community, uh, an opportunity to support us in new ways through, you know, tallow, cosmetic, uh, skincare products, or uh, pet shoes. We also send some small number of hides to a tannery in upstate New York to be veg tanned into uh, leather, which we then bring back and turn into wallets, bags, and belts for uh, you know yet another income stream. But also in, in that those zero waste products created probably a dozen jobs in one of the poorest counties in one of the poorest states in the nation. And, and to me, that is, uh, you know, the real driver for these products. Sure, it's nice to have the revenue, uh, and, and some of those departments are profitable, but the, uh, you know, the different personalities and opportunities that it, it creates uh, are really where it's at. So that's a little bit about, of course, the pet shoes, the tallow, the value-added products. If you guys want to hear some more about that, please go check out regenerateconference.com. Put the information on the screen here and uh, please go buy some tickets and come check us out. Uh, so you guys, of course, one of the first members of AGA. Um, 
or the first member of AGI, of course, and it helps. I was going to say, don't sell me short. We were number yeah, one. Yeah, number one, number one, and and helps create this whole thing. So, you know, and of course, you guys have continued with the program, and it's important. You know, you guys helped create this, so it's it's part of your it being it being your baby in a way. But you know, why is this so important? And it, the AGA program so important, and why why is it important to see that seal on on someone's product? Yeah, that, that's a really good question, and it'll lead me into a soapbox, so you'll probably have to cut me off uh, at some point, but one of the things, you know, I'm the director of marketing, and one of the things that really pisses me off is the amount of grass-fed beef that winds up in this country, labeled as a product of the USA, that is not a product of the USA. Um, you know, imported product, you know better than me, makes up more than 80% of the grass-fed beef uh, sold in America. And those animals are, you know, raised and slaughtered uh, in another country and then put on a boat, shipped here to a port, taken into a plant and cut into steaks and then labeled as a product of the USA. That animal never drew a breath of American air, but it is a product of the USA. And for me, uh, that, that's a problem. I feel like, you know, consumers are in the driver's seat so that, uh, you know, they can use their hard-earned dollars to promote systems that they want to see continue. You know, if, if you don't like uh, child labor, don't buy products that are made with child labor. And I feel as though the food labeling that occurs in this country is incredibly corrupt uh, to the point where consumers can't go in the grocery store and push their little buggy and even know what they're getting. And I, I think that that's done uh, by design and it stacks the deck against not only farmers like us, but aspiring farmers that want to farm the way we farm. You know, we often get get asked, but why don't more consumers farm like y'all? And the truth is because it's it's incredibly risky and it's a break-even business. Uh, and there aren't very many professions that people are just knocking down the doors to do uh, to take on incredible risk and to break even doing it. You know, that the, the downside is too great for farmers to do what we're doing. And so I truly believe that in, that, that can change, but it's not gonna change in, in any other way than consumers understanding the products that they're buying and the systems that create them and, and using that dollar to promote those systems, uh, you know, to, to continue. That's an amazing answer. Um, so folks, of course, you know, AGA, the, the only USA only certification, and that's, that's how we combat that offshore meat, right? For the consumer, you can go into the store and you can know exactly what you're buying. This was a product of the USA for sure, from birth to harvest, the whole process for the, for the farmer, a way to demand the value because people know that you are following a particular set of standards and now you should be able to demand the value that you brought to that product in the market. Um, so excellent for both sides and, and thank you for that answer. Um, so 
one of the most important things here. Where, where can we all get our hands on White Oak Pastures products? That's great. Thank you for asking. Uh, so uh, all of our products are uh, available through our website, whiteoakpastures.com. Uh, and then uh, certain grocery stores here in the South. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Public Supermarket. They carry our grass-fed ground beef in all of their locations. Uh, we deliver to all five of their warehouses. Uh, Kroger Supermarket in Atlanta, the Atlanta Distribution Center, carries our ground beef. And then Whole Foods, it's, it's hit or miss, but uh, Whole Foods carries our beef as well. But the, the, the best way to get our products and know that they're in stock and have a full variety to choose from is through our website, whiteoakpastures.com. Thank you, Jenny. And um, just the last thing I want to talk about is, you know, you, you talked about some really important lessons throughout the throughout the podcast, just, you know, making it over, over the next hill and over the next hill that you come to and being flexible enough in your operation and willing to take the risks and everything that are needed to be successful. What are some of the most, what, what is the most important lesson you've learned in your time at White Oak Pastures since you I feel like I have war stripes all over me. Uh, I, I entered as a young, innocent 25-year-old, and I came out the other side as a gray-headed, uh, gray-headed old lady. The, let's see, you know, for, for me, it's always been, uh, I, I, I hinted on this, you know, farmers believe that processing, if they just had processing, that things would, would, would open up for them and be, be easier. And that's true, it, it would be easier. For, for me, the, the things that I think I need, and I think, oh, if we can just make this happen, uh, you know, everything will be all right. And the truth is, once we make that thing happen, it opens up a whole nother uh, spider web of other things that we've got to make happen. And the truth is that's that's the evolution, that's the journey. You know, if if if, if it was just that one thing, then you might as well go ahead and die. You know, it's it's over. You know, it, it okay, good, you're done. And uh, you know, so I, I find myself just wanting to be able to accomplish that next thing and not being as excited as I should be for the things that come beyond that next thing. And then those next thing, next thing, and then those next, next, next things. So, uh, you know, that that is one thing that I've, I've really focused on in the last few weeks is, uh, you know, my, my own motivation in embracing those additional journeys beyond just that 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 next step. Yes, absolutely. We, we all need to smile during the journey and, and remember that that's, that's the, that's the whole thing. If we're not enjoying the journey, then what's the point, right? If you're not enjoying the journey, then get on another airplane. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Thank you so much, Jenny. I, I really appreciate your time today. You've done an amazing job. And thank you guys for doing the most important job on the planet, feed, feeding, feeding America. Thank you for giving us an opportunity to share what we do uh, with the followers of the American Grassbed Association. We appreciate y'all.